Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. My name is Gage. And my name is Ray. And you are listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. Spooky. Oh, don't worry. We got a little bit of that in there today. A little bit of spook today. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yes, I'm always in the mood for some spook. It's some spook, but it's also a very, very sad episode. As they usually are. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So nothing, we're not doing anything different or out of the ordinary, I see. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, we hope that you're having a good day and a good week. And, and a, a good, good life. life. Oh, I didn't do it. I missed out. It is absolutely okay. I don't mind appearing to be the only dumbass on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it is completely fine. <laughs> So we're just going to jump right into it because today's case is, oh my God, this case has had me in a chokehold. <laughs> I know. <laughs> for like three days. <laughs> Do you remember last week, uh, the Tristan Bailey episode, which my God, I hope we are all recovering from that. Yes. Of Jesus, course I remember it. How can Jesus. I not remember it? Well, you were saying, you know, you've been a little, you've been a little different this week. You've just been absorbed and just turning into this crying creature. Right. <laughs> You've been doing the same thing this past week with this case, I've noticed. Like, the minute that we got the request, you immediately started. No hearing from you, no text, and no nothing. And then the next time I did hear from you, it was just all sad, all bad, and oh my fucking God. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I'm not ready. So when we normally get requests in, uh, we do our best to try to pump them out as quickly as possible. So that way you guys can hear what you want to listen to. But sometimes just because of what we already have in rotation, things that we already have planned, it gets kind of muddled in there somewhere. But right, don't right. worry. We have your requests on a very long list and we are working to notch those off. Yes, yes. More to come. So, today's case was requested by Nona. Nona! Hi, Nona. We love you. I fucking love Nona. She is my spooky queen. She is the spookiest of queens. <laughs> and I just, uh, I love you so much, Nona. If you're listening to this, thank you for requesting a case. And I really, really miss you. I miss you so bad. <laughs> I love you and I miss you. And, and I, I miss, miss you and, and I love you. you. <laughs> 
The goblin energy is here. But if you haven't gathered, Nona is a friend of ours, and she requested we cover Corpsewood Manor, which is right here in our home state of Georgia. Ooh, another Hometown Legends episode. Yes. So December 12th, 1982, Charles Scudder and his partner Joseph Odom were brutally murdered in their home by two acquaintances in a drug-fueled robbery that went sideways. Oh my god. The two murderers were actually accompanied to this murder with two of their other friends' acquaintances. Oh my god. And these two had absolutely nothing to do with the crime. They actually served as material witnesses, and they were able to identify the culprits. My goodness. The circumstances of the investigation and the capture of these two men are not the distinguishing factors of this case. It's the vilification of the two victims. So, with that being said, I'd like to add that today's episode includes discussions on Satanism. There's some homophobia in there, and I would like to gently remind those listening that this podcast does not and will not ever discriminate on religion, race, or gender. These are just the facts as we know them. No, we are definitely not the type to discriminate, and I don't know how many of you guys know this because we really don't make it a thing nor do we i guess we've never really talked about it but if you don't know to all of you listening we are a queer podcast (laughs) 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 like let me (laughs) and i don't want to hear none of you acting surprised i don't want to hear (laughs) i don't want to hear none of it but yeah we are a queer podcast i am very gay very 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 gay (laughs) my friend ray you are also Pretty gay. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty gay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's just something to throw in there. We definitely do not discriminate. We are some of the most open-minded people, so you know. Yeah, because I, I sit on both sides of the fence. I like both men's and women's. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I am just as gay as gay can possibly be. I know there have been a couple times where you're like, damn, girl, you're gayer than I am. <laughs> because you are and i love you so much i love you so much to begin i am going to introduce you to dr charles scudder charles was born on october 6 1926 in wauwatosa wisconsin I hope I said that correctly. I think you did good. I'm just, I was taken back by the fact that he's a Libra (laughs) because I'm also a Libra, October 11th. So October Libras are entering the chat. Yes. (laughs) Growing up, he was highly intelligent. He was interested in almost everything. And in the 1940s, he attended Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio, and was involved with the school's drama program. He was also heavily involved in music and art. And while there, he met Helen Kilborn Hazlett, and the two were married on September 10th, 1946. Okay. This marriage soon ended in divorce. Okay. Somewhere along the way, he chose to pursue science as his career. Charles remarried Bortai Bunting, who was the daughter of a British modernist poet named Basil Bunting. 
That marriage also ended in divorce after having four sons together named Saul, Gideon, Fenris, and Ahab. Wow, what beautiful names. Right. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, very unusual, but beautiful names. I was, like, taken back by that for a second. In the 1970s, Charles was a fierce academic. After studying zoology, chemistry, and languages as an undergraduate, he earned a Ph.D. in pharmacology. So shortly after that, the strict medical school Loyola University of Chicago hired him as an associate professor of pharmacology. Nice. So he was also co-director at the Institute for the Study of Mind, Drugs, and Behaviors, where he would do a lot of government-funded experiments on LSD. Whoa. And this isn't like street LSD that you go buy from some dude that your friend knows. <laughs> no. This is government-grade LSD. Interesting. So they wanted to study and record what happens to your brain and how it makes you feel and behave. And that's some scary shit. Right, right. I can imagine that's intense. Like, my God. For more than a decade, he taught students while maintaining his own research. His work at the university was, by his own definition, a good job. And he was described by those who knew him as brilliant, polished, and soft-spoken, but confident. He had a very wide range in his talents, and he was often thought of as eccentric. And his interests included collecting antiques, painting, creating stained glass windows, playing this huge, beautiful golden harp, and pursuing a lively and varied correspondence with individuals and institutions, including Anton LaVey. Ooh, Anton LaVey. I do know that name. The thing about Charles is, if there was anything he wanted or needed to learn, he would just read about it and do it. Like, right. he was extremely intelligent. And his personal library contained books of variety, and the information in that library was just as extensive as his interests and talents. So... This guy was, like, genius level. He definitely seemed to be ahead of his time. Definitely. For sure. He would also dye his hair purple, and at one point in time, he had a pet monkey. Oh, that's that's honestly cool as fuck. Right? <laughs> honestly, I think that's really cool. Okay. He believed in the unity of the universe and published the results of his experiments on that subject. And if he was ever asked about his religion, he would openly say, I'm a Satanist. Okay, cool, cool. Other sources stated that he was just an atheist that related to LeVay's beliefs. But he was also telling his friends in Georgia that he hadn't joined the organization due to the membership fee. But apparently, according to Magistra Peggy Nadramia, who is a high priestess in the Church of Satan... Dr. Scudder formalized his affiliation by mailing his membership form and a check for $50 to San Francisco on June 16, 1980. A canceled check for a subscription to the Church of Satan's newsletter, The Cloven Hoof, was found on his desk after his death. He was also an accomplished harp player and had been invited to play with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Wow. Honestly, he just sounds like a beautiful soul and a very fun person to be around. Right, and learn from. right, right. That's what I'm sitting here thinking. Like, that's what I aspire to be. 
I would love to maybe play harp or cello or whatever the fuck, dye my hair purple, maybe have a pet monkey. Like, I'm with it. I'm with it. I am with all of this right now. Like, my goodness. <laughs> and he was most certainly ahead of his time. Yeah, absolutely. There's no denying that. So time passed and his three children had grown up and moved out of his aging mansion on the west side of Chicago. They moved out for their own pursuits. So Charles and his longtime housekeeper and companion, Joseph Odom, were the only two residents left. He also lived with his two English Mastiff dogs named Arsenath, after an H.P. Lovecraft character. Nice. And Beelzebub. Oh my god, I am with it. I am so with it. And Beelzebub is uh, named after one of the seven princes of hell that represents gluttony and envy. Right. So I've included pictures on our socials. They are some huge dogs, by the way. I bet they are so, so beautiful. Like, I can't. Just the names alone. But I also can't help but think that every time, you know, I'm outside in the summer, obviously, you've gathered this. Uh, everyone listening, we are from Georgia. That is our home state. That's where we do all of this podcast magic from. But every <laughs> single time for years now, every time that I see a fly or I have like a fly aggravating me or something like that, I always just gobble it out. And I'm like, why won't you leave me alone, Beelzebub? <laughs> leave me. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so my ADHD is in full swing, man. So you know my brother's dog, how big he is, and he's a Newfoundland. And these dogs are maybe just a little bit smaller than Spike, if you can imagine. So imagine a dog that big charging at you. Son of a bitch, that's no. A, that's a big no for me. I'm good. Well, if they were charging at me for hugs, I would love it. Then I'm with it. <laughs> if they were coming at me to eat me, I would shit myself. <laughs> no. <laughs> So now let's talk about his partner, Joseph Odom. And Charles and Joseph met in 1959, and Joseph was 12 years younger than Charles. Everyone knew him as Joey, so I will call him Joey. And he was the housekeeper and the cook, and he was living in the mansion with Charles and his kids and everything, taking care of him and his sons. And he was with this family for over 17 years, basically. Wow. Now, Joey grew up in a poor household, and he only had a fifth-grade education, but he taught himself to cook and clean, and he was very skilled in the kitchen. Like, cooking was his passion. Wow. Okay. So, Charles wrote of him once in an article for Mother Earth News called A Castle in the Country, and I've included the article in the show notes because the whole thing is written by Charles, and it just shows you... What a beautiful soul he was. The whole thing is still available on their website. He's quoted saying, quote, He'd learned far more about the world than I had with all my degrees. And somewhere along the line, he'd develop a talent for whipping up meals fit for a king. End quote. Aww. Even though they were complete opposites of each other, they were always perfectly in sync and inseparable. This is going to make me fucking cry. Like, this is genuinely going to make me cry. Ugh. There's no other information about their relationship. It's believed that they were in an open relationship because at that time they weren't able to really be as free as they wanted to be. 
right. with just the two of them. Right. So it was kind of like, I guess back in that time, it was like you got love wherever you could find it. Right. I mean, I, I guess I get that. So through passing time, Charles and Joey would have witnessed gay people fighting and dying for their rights. The Stonewall riots occurred in New York City in June of 1969, and these riots were pivotal moments in the modern gay rights movement in the United States. Right, very much so. So considering the stigma still attached to homosexuality at the dawn of the 70s, the movement saw tremendous gains throughout the course of the decade. So public opinion was swamped with homophobia. And can you guess what else was flooding into public opinion? Satanic panic. I was just about. I I was I was on the tip of my tongue if I should say or say it or not. But that was my first thought was satanic panic. That is very much a thing, especially in the fucking seventies. My God. The satanic panic, the ritualistic murders, the secret cults and serial killers, and again, we're talking about the seventies. So even to this day, satanic there, <laughs> panic exists. Right, and there were. A lot of serial killers in the 70s. A lot of prolific serial killers in the 70s. Prolific as fuck. (laughs) So we talked about Satanism more in depth during the Chicago Ripper Crew episode. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was the Chicago Ripper Crew episode, which, oh boy, that is an old, old gem. That was our first published episode here. So Newsflash. Satanists don't worship the devil. They do not worship a deity, but instead they worship oneself. And the devil is used as a symbol of like their thumb to Christianity, basically, like saying, ha, fuck you. Right. That's basically why, um, from what I understand, it was supposed to be like an insult. Right, right. Which, if we have any of that information incorrect to any of our listeners that may be practicing Satanist, we are not Satanist, nor do we claim to be. And if we, you know, misrepresent anything, we are so sorry. Definitely not trying to do that. But also educate us, because we're always down to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. If you are a practicing Satanist, we would love to hear your take on all of this definitely you know send us a message or whatever you'd like but for sure always open to constructive criticism so the devil is used as a symbol of humankind's inner desires from what i understand and your everyday satanist isn't out there murdering people and eating babies no definitely not definitely (laughs) not it's the other motherfuckers that do that shit. Right, oh, right, right. And by other, I mean sick individuals who have warped perception of reality and do the type of awful shit we cover on this podcast. (laughs) So, now that you have some backstory, it's now 1976. Charles is now 50 years old, and it's his birthday, and also the day he chose to resign from his job. Nice. Boss ass moves. Right, right. Nice. He was just beginning to feel worn down, and I read that his youngest son, Ahab, suddenly died. Oh, God. So I don't know if that was, like, a thing, if that factored into him feeling worn down, or if his child even died. There's so many conflicting stories on this one story. Gotcha, gotcha. Like, basically... The facts ended up turning into myth and legend. Interesting. Gotcha. Go go figure. Anyway, 
I couldn't find anything on it, but I'm sure that was just his motivation to get the fuck out. Right, right. As he put it, quote, my house was no castle in the country. I lived in an old mansion in a decaying residential area that was more like a mausoleum, a tomb requiring care, cleaning and endless costly repairs. I was plagued with taxes, light bills, gas bills, water bills, heating bills, and the helpless feeling that resulted from watching my old neighborhood disintegrate into an urban ghetto, end quote. Wow. He mentioned that his garden was his only solace living in the city life, and he even got excited when the city's wildlife, the rats, came to drink from the pool in his garden at night. Like, he was actually finding himself getting excited over seeing it. <laughs> so he gives some insight on why he resigned from his job by saying, quote, and as time passed, the medical students grew more unruly and less interested in learning. The standards of the school steadily dropped, and my department became a hotbed of office politics, backbiting, and resentment, end quote. Goodness. Well, I can't say I blame him for feeling a little worn down with that shit then. Right? So when he left his office, he took with him two real human skulls. From the university and a metric fuck ton of LSD. A metric fuck ton. Like 12,000 doses worth. God! <laughs> 12,000 hits of LSD? Yeah. Boy, he was tripping. <laughs> tripping. Bing! My man had full intentions of tripping dick out in the forest, frolicking and foraging his way out of everyone's bullshit. <laughs> that sounds like a wonderful way to do it, though. Like, <laughs> holy fucking shit, 12,000. My, my God. <laughs> but, but as you will later find out, he never took any of the doses. Really? It was merely as a souvenir of his work. Wow. I'm giving the game away too early. Let me shut up. So anyway. <laughs> anyway, he chose an isolated spot in the woods in Tryon, Georgia to begin his new life. He had recently received an inheritance from the death of his father that was giving him $200 a month. And for that time, that was a lot of money. Right. I was just saying, you have to think this is the 70s. Right. So he purchased 40 acres of mountainous, undeveloped land with the intention to build his own castle. He wanted his own little spot in the world where he was completely free to be himself with Joey by his side, free of judgment to express his sexuality and religion. Oh, the tone of sadness, the tone of sadness. I already kind of see where this is fucking going. My God. So after some conversations, the couple decided to move out to the country with the glamour of four seasons, but without super cold winters, and most desirable, somewhere isolated where they can live off the grid. Right. So in Charles's article, he wrote, quote, I studied geological survey maps of southern states and wrote to the presidents of local realty boards. One such person answered that he had 40 inexpensive acres of hardwood trees in the Appalachian foothills, completely surrounded by national forest land. I figured that cash from the sale of my city property, 
plus my retirement fund and the money in escrow would allow me to make such a move. So I drove down to Georgia to take a look. There I found hummingbirds, whippoorwills, butterflies, bobcats, great oaks, fungi, and rolling mountain woodland. I was hooked, end quote. Wow. Yep, that definitely sums up Georgia, plus cotton mouse and mosquitoes. <laughs> right? So to be surrounded by all that wildlife after being in the city for so long, like, that really does hit different. Right, right. I can imagine. Because then, you know, you can actually see the stars. It's not polluted by city lights, and you it's hear a, all the yeah, nature. It's a it's... different kind of beauty. It truly is. So he auctioned off all of his possessions he didn't care about, sold his mansion property, and arranged for a moving company to move them. Then Joe and Charles, plus his two dogs, packed up in their Jeep and camper and left for their kingdom. Oh, my fucking heart, man. What the fuck? As Charles put it, quote, within two short years, we were living in an elegant mini castle, end quote. In just two years, Charles and Joe had their dream home, living on a completely self-sustainable estate that they built together with their bare hands. They built this place together with their bare hands. Oh, my God. They had literally everything they ever needed, and anything they needed done, they did it themselves. They had fruit trees and grapevines that they would use in their own vineyard. They made their own wine. A vegetable garden that produced fresh corn, cabbage, carrots, potatoes, and other edibles. They built their own well for a water supply as well as an outhouse. Not only was this estate self-sustainable, but it also had the flair and aesthetic of Charles in that house. They had a huge pink gargoyle on top of this brick gazebo that was taught by a sun deck. A pink gargoyle? A pink gargoyle. I love these two so much. Like, I am, I am fucking with it. And the, the gargoyle looked over their rose garden. Oh, my God. And this is where Joey and Charles would sit and drink tea, was in their rose garden. Goals as fuck. Right. Goals as fuck. So I've, of course, included what photos I could find on our socials. I did my best to explain what it looked like. You can't really explain the type of beauty that they built, but it's unique and it's beautiful. And I would have loved to have seen it in its glory days. Like Right, same. Inside the house, they had a very gothic aesthetic. Ooh. Yes. The house was decorated with a lot of art, especially his own. And he created and adorned a stained glass portrait of Baphomet inside the house. And it's beautiful when you look at it. It really is. The human skulls he swiped from the Institute were also decorative items. Holy fucking shit, man. They had a lot of antiques and occult pieces as well. And his interest in the occult was not only evident throughout their home, but it was also seen in the pentagrams he painted on the doors of his black Jeep. And in the catalogs and books that they also found later in his home. Right, right. So, like I said, he was very openly gay, very openly Satanist, um, just beautiful. So, side note, local legend says that the couple even summoned a real demon into the house to assist the dogs in guarding the house. Wow. That is quite the rumor. Wow, wow, all right, that is... 
one hell of a Homeland Security upgrade. I'm telling you, <laughs> who needs Ring at this point? <laughs> Holy shit. So even though they had no electricity, no phone, no television set, they really didn't miss those things because they had no electric bill, no phone bill, no water bill. Um, if I could, I would. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I mean, right. Same. Oh, my God. Same. So why the name Corpsewood Manor? Apparently, Charles and Joey arrived at their property in the Chattahoochee-Oconee National Forest during an ice storm. And if you can imagine how isolated and cold and visibility is low, so they actually got lost trying to find their property. <laughs> wow. I mean, I bet. Holy shit. But as they attempted to reach the property, the first thing they saw was the corpse of a dead horse blocking the road to their property. So they named the road Dead Horse Road. Well, I'd say that's very fitting. I don't know what other name would be appropriate for a road with a dead horse on it. <laughs> so the two-story brick castle-like home became Corpsewood Manor as they took in the beauty of the bare haunted trees around their new home. Charles was a fan of the Adams family and he enjoyed the spooky side of life, if you couldn't tell. Same, same. I'm with it. And just like all of us weird and spooky dudes, you know, he just decided to put up a sign that would proudly announce Beware of the thing. <laughs> Beware of the thing. I love it. Oh, my God. I love it. So Charles and Joey were having the time of their life, which is evident by this quote from Charles. Quote, at 10 a.m. we had tea in the gazebo and I designed a new chicken house that I plan to start building soon. Tonight I may practice my harp or perhaps I'll just sit in the courtyard and listen to the tree frogs and whippoorwills while bats fly and the clouds drift across the full moon. The world that's around me now is fresh, quiet, and very beautiful, end quote. My God. So this chicken coop that was next to the house, it was a three-story building. I also included a photo of it. But inside, the first story was a chicken coop, obviously, for self-sustainable reasons. The second story was for canned food and food storage, and one source said that on the second floor, there was also a pornography collection. Okay. <laughs> on the second floor. <laughs> and on the third floor, it was lovingly called the pink room. And apparently, it was like Christian Grey's Red Room meets Airbnb. Uh, oh. So oh. they built this room up in the third level. And you had to climb like a 30 or 40 foot ladder to get all the way up to the top. Jesus. So every time someone wanted to go to the pink room, you got to climb this ladder. Jesus. That's a fuck no for me. Yeah, I'd be scared. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> but it was supposedly furnished with porn, whips, chains, restraints, mattresses, pink linens, pink shag carpet, pink painted walls, and even displayed a guest book listing guest sexual predilections. They were living life. Living life. They allegedly would entertain guests in this room instead of entertaining them in the house. And they'd throw these wild sex parties like, baby, living life, baby. <laughs> Holy Do hell. Do you hear me? They was living life. Living. <laughs> 
So apparently you could do whatever you wanted in this room as long as it was consensual. That was the only rule. But even though these pink room parties were consensual, they are also the reason that on the night of December 12th, 1982, Corpsewood Manor turned into a bloody murder scene. So things were going well for Joey and Charles. They made friends with some of the locals, and then their new friends would bring fruit to be turned into Dr. Scudder's homemade wine. The house gained quite the reputation and also hosted a wedding in the Rose Garden, accompanied by Charles playing his harp from the sun deck above the gazebo. Wow, my God. What a wedding. I can't. Like, I'm telling you, this is going to make me cry, man. Local hunters would regularly pass through their property, and they would ask for permission to hunt on their land because their land was so expansive. So Charles and Joey were very hospitable hosts. They were always really chill with these hunters and even shared some of their homemade wine. And one of these hunters was 17-year-old Kenneth Avery Brock. Now, Brock had apparently befriended Charles and Joey and had hung out with them a few times. Information is scarce and reports vary, obviously, but according to Amy Petula's The Corpsewood Manor Murders in North Georgia, Brock may have had several sexual encounters with Charles. The lifestyle Charles and Joey enjoyed led Brock to believe that the couple were millionaires. But as I mentioned earlier... They spent all their savings, all their belongings, literally gave up everything for their secluded homestead, and they were only living on just $200 a month, which was more than enough. Right, right. Now, I know that the money value was greater back then, but it's not the fortune Brock was thinking it was. Right, definitely fucking not. In late 1982, Brock moved into a trailer home to be roommates with a 30-year-old unemployed man named Samuel Tony West. Brock had been living with his father who allegedly abused him, and he was later kicked out of his father's home, and that's how he ended up moving into West's trailer. So as for this guy West, not only did he have a criminal record, but he also spent time in a psychiatric facility for accidentally shooting and killing his two-year-old nephew when he was just 13 years old. Oh, my God. So this guy is a fucking character, I guess. Jesus. I don't know what else we'd call that. So one night, Brock told West about the queer devil worshippers he met, and he believed that they were sitting on a fortune. He's telling him all the details about how they live in isolation, and it's this huge mansion and blah, blah, blah. Anyone living off the grid in a mansion wouldn't trust the banks, so they must be sitting on it. Or at least that was the thought that they shared. Jesus. Now, West was not someone who was open-minded at all. He's a straight man in the Deep South in the 80s. This is the Bible Belt. So the fact that they were A, satanic, and B, homosexual, was just not sitting right with him. And I'll let that paint its own picture. Jesus, this is sad. Even people who were pleasantly disposed toward Charles and Joey began to refer to them as the homosexual devil worshippers. Lovely. 
Word was getting around quickly and the vilification began. So to this day, Charles and Joey are thought of in a negative way because of their lifestyle. And that's fucking sad. Despite the negative connotation, many locals would still visit Corpsewood Manor to either marvel at the progress of its construction or to get the chance to meet the cautious but friendly Dr. Scudder. So let's get back to Brock. Because he had some sort of relationship with the couple, be it friendship or otherwise, there were open opportunities for these two men to visit under false pretenses. So there was some sort of relationship between these four men. Like they were acquaintances, friends, you know, they... Something. Yeah. According to Petula, Wes strongly objected to any kind of sexual activity with Charles and Joey. But as I mentioned earlier, Brock may have invited or entertained it. But apparently, he may have twisted what happened when talking about the couple to West. Furthermore, it's speculated that West may have convinced Brock that he'd been taken advantage of by Charles. Again, whether Brock had actually been taken advantage of remains unclear. But in my opinion... I doubt it. If a couple has a sex room and the only rule is consent... I very highly doubt they would take advantage of anyone. Right. That doesn't seem like their vibe at all. I just think this is a case of he doesn't want to admit who he is. And <laughs> and that is... That's some repressed uh, shit there. Right. And that's fucking sad. Like, man, this is sad. This is so sad. So the two of them hatched a plan to rob Charles and Joey. Brock and West were under the impression that Dr. Scudder was secretly rich that Corpsewood Manor was full of treasure, and that if they eliminate the inhabitants of the manor, they could just move in. What the fuck? No one would care. They were sinful devil worshippers. Besides, Dr. Scudder tried to make Avery a homosexual, and he had taken advantage of him. Oh the, my god, man. Uh -huh. The homosexual devil worshippers deserved it. They had discussed this in length for weeks before the murders. For weeks. Premeditated as, as fuck. fuck. This is so sad. I know I've just said it like 10 times in a row, but my God, this is fucking sad. And I, I hate this. I really fucking hate this. And if that wasn't already terrible enough, Brock said at one point that he wanted to take a heated welding iron and rape Scudder with it. So there's obviously a very important piece to this story that's missing, and it's what made Brock so hostile towards Charles. In November of 1982, Brock was doing everything he could to get closer to Scudder to get the layout of the house. But the funny thing is, Charles and Joey didn't allow a lot of people into their home. So every time he came over... They went to the pink room. Oh, man. So on December 10th, these twat waffles are driving up to the manor with the intent to carry out their plan. They're driving through the mountains and West asks where the rifle was and Brock tells him he didn't bring it. He was just going to do this with a knife. Until, what? Until... West reminded him of the two English Mastiffs that were in the house, so they had to abort the plan for the day. My God. Yeah. My God. So now it's the night of December 12th, 1982. On the way out to Corpsewood Manor, Brock and West drove to Brock's mother's house to pick up a 22 Remington rifle 
that used to belong to his father. They told her that they were just going out to hunt rabbit. What the fuck? Shortly after that, they picked up West's nephew, Joey Wells, and his date, Teresa Hudgens. This was their first date between Joey Wells and Teresa Hudgens. And according to one of my sources, Wells and Teresa were on this date, and then they bumped into or, like, ran into Brock and West, and they ended up agreeing on going for a joyride. Oh, my God. Now, could you imagine agreeing to go on a date and this shit is going on? Like, I am ghosting you after this. <laughs> right. Like, holy shit. Now, neither one of them knew what Brock and West had in mind. They had absolutely no idea what was about to transpire. They were completely innocent in this. And on their way, headed to Corpsewood, the four of them huffed a combination of alcohol, paint thinner, and glue Poured into a rag, which is also known as a toodaloo. A toodaloo. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Because <laughs> I guess that's how it makes you feel. It's fucking toodaloo. <laughs> fuck. Huffing. A toodle fucking loo. Oh huffing my God. Alcohol, paint thinner, and glue. Toodaloo. <laughs> to your fucking brain cells, bitch. Bye. Bye. I'm crying. Okay, I literally, again, physically holding my shit together. Right. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. So now they're at Corpsewood. Brock and West are acting as if they were just there to hang out, saying absolutely nothing to these two innocent people you brought with you. Like, why the fuck would you do that? That makes no sense. It doesn't. It's fucking sad. You brought two teenagers as tagalongs to your bullshit. I just don't understand that either, but... Upon their arrival... Charles was his usual hospitable self. He greeted his guests, took them up to the pink room, and brought them wine. They sat around drinking and conversing with the two teenagers, Wells and Teresa, in one corner, and Brock, West, and Charles were in another. Joey was in the main house cleaning up what was left behind after him and Charles's dinner, and it wasn't long before Brock supposedly said he was going out to his car to get some more toodaloo, when in fact he went to the car to go get the rifle. Jesus. He came back to the pink room, and it said that when Charles saw the gun, he wasn't freaking out or nothing about it because he knew Brock was a hunter, and he probably just didn't want to leave that in the car. And he's also, I mean, I would hope that your first thought wouldn't be, my fucking God, my friend's about to shoot me. Right. Like, Jesus, fuck, man. But because he was probably a little intoxicated from all, you know, from drinking. All the toodaloos. Well, Charles didn't do toodaloo. Oh, you're talking about Charles. Got you, got yeah. you, got you, got so you. So when Charles was, you know, probably a little intoxicated, he sees this gun and he goes, bang, bang, you know, just jokingly. Jesus, and that just gave me fucking chills. He had to have had a level of trust with Brock to not freak out and be like, what the fuck is this, you know? Right. So Brock sits back down and they all go back to drinking. So this whole situation is fucked, for one. You're up in a room with the only escape being a ladder. You're drinking and there's a gun now in the equation. So this is just a bad situation about to get drastically worse. So Charles got up to, like, fix something or, like, he had gotten fed up with Brock's behavior or something to that effect. Something happened to where Charles got up. Gotcha. Brock pulled a knife from his boot and charged Charles. 
grabbing him by the hair and holding him at knife point. Jesus fucking Christ. He had the knife to his throat and he began demanding that Charles hand over all of his money. Teresa and Wells were terrified and they were running toward the ladder to escape to the car. But Wes stops them and threatens to kill them if they don't sit down. What the fuck? Now, keep in mind, Joey Wells is Samuel Tony West's nephew. Right. So, like, what the fuck? You're telling your own nephew, sit down or I'm going to kill you. Jesus fucking Christ. So, Brock then throws Charles onto a mattress and he cuts strips out of a pink sheet to gag and tie Charles up. Which he did in a weird way. Like, supposedly, he cut into Charles's jacket and, like, weaved the pink strips through his jacket and tied him up that way. What? Yeah, the whole time yelling at him, where's the money? Like, where's the money? Give me the money. Jesus. So, Charles, before Charles was gagged, he was, like, trying to yell back at him that, you know, really, they didn't have any money. Remember, they sank everything into this place. But he gagged him, I guess, because he thought Charles was lying. But before gagging him, he demanded to know who was in the house. And Charles told him just Joey and the dogs. So this sick bastard gags him and says, I'm going to go take care of that. How fucking cruel. Like all of this. Oh, my God. So Brock went down the ladder and into the main house's kitchen where he surprised Joey, shooting him four times as well as killing the couple's two mastiffs who were still curled up in their beds. Oh my fucking God. Brock said in his testimony that Joey reached for a gun, but the evidence disputes this. The only gun that was in the house was on the top floor of the residence in a box. There was no gun near Joey at all. This fucker is lying. My God, man. He also tried to say that he just shot wildly at Joey and the bullets killed Joey and the dogs from ricocheting off the walls or something. That's fucking bullshit. You shot them to death. This was calculated and premeditated. Uh, Joey Odom was shot four times in the neck, head, and arm. Jesus fucking Christ. And these shots could be heard in the pink room. So Charles had to listen to his partner and his dogs being murdered. Yes. I have not one fucking word. Not one. Now, even though Joey was shot in the kitchen, he apparently tried to um, crawl away because at like the end point, he was somewhere like kind of in the kitchen, kind of in the hallway. At this point, Brock then returns to the pink room and announces that he killed that man and those dogs. Bound and gagged, Charles was carried down the ladder and taken into Corpsewood Manor where he was met with the body of his dead partner. That was the first thing Charles saw when they took him in the house. Teresa, who was forced in the house alongside Wells, she would testify that when Charles saw this, he let out a loud, gagged moan. And Brock and Wes continued to grill him for money. Oh, my fucking God. Like saying, look at what we just did. You better tell us, you know, kind of shit. Oh, my fucking God. Wes pushes Charles down on the couch in the library, pulls his gag out, and is yelling at him and beating him, demanding money. And weird enough, he also interjects and goes, 
where's your soldering iron? Oh, my God. To which Charles replies that he doesn't have a fucking soldering iron. They don't have electricity. I am just fucking blown. You like remember I what am. they said they wanted to do to him. Yes. So that's fucking terrifying. They would that like they're asking you where something is to further prolo- prolong your torture. I don't have a whole lot to say. I'm just like fucking blown. I am blown. Earlier on the day of his death, Charles had been playing his harp and he used a battery powered portable stereo to record himself playing and reciting the words to poet William Blake's The Tiger. It was supposed to be a gift for his friend. And as Brock and Wes are yelling at Charles, beating him, they're also kind of ransacking the house at the same time. They'd somehow mistakenly hit play on this stereo. And in pure horror movie fashion, Dr. Scudder's voice filled the room, reciting the poem over his harp's melody like a soundtrack to this senseless and heartbreaking crime. Oh my God. This clip that I have, was playing while all of this is going on. Oh, my God. We're going to listen to it, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Fuck. Fuck. I'm going to play that for you now. Stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? I honestly don't have words. Like, I genuinely don't. The amount of sadness and anger, more sadness than anything else, but the amount of just not good emotions that that gave me, to think of that playing in this couple's house as all of this is unfolding, like, heartbreaking isn't the fucking word for that. This is absolutely fucking evil. Yeah. Like, I don't have any words for that. Like, I just... (sighs) He was a very accomplished heart player, and it was beautiful. Yeah. But like, it's just fucking sad. I don't know. I'm really, I usually don't have such a hard time talking about things, but that truly just left me kind of speechless. Like it really left me kind of speechless. I don't really have anything to add to that. So Charles is pleading with them and telling them he doesn't have any money. And by Teresa's account, she said that Charles stood up, West pushed him back down. So he stood up again And started shuffling toward Joey's body. Oh, my God. (sighs) West was yelling at him to stop and sit back down or he he was going to kill him. And Charles didn't stop. He stood over Joey, looking down at him, and his last words were, I asked for this. West shot him in the back of the head at close range, dropping Charles to his knee. Teresa said he stood up and tried to say something, but West shot him again in his right temple and sent Charles reeling into the bookcase and fell. She said he tried to speak again, or he was, like, still breathing at this point, and he was shot three more times in the head at close range. I asked for this was Charles' last words. He was shot five times in the head. These two men were brutally murdered in their dream home. 
a dream home that they literally gave up everything for, that they literally built with their own two hands. It angers me and it saddens me in a way I can't describe. Um. Oh, baby. I hate crying while we're recording. Now, the article I read from the Church of Satan. Wait, before we even continue, before we even continue, I'm sorry. You're fine. I am fucking crying, you guys. Oh, my God. I'm trying to get it together. I'm trying to get it together. I hate crying on air. It makes me feel very awkward. But this is so sad, and it's so angering to me, and it's scary. Because, you know, one could say, well, in today's time, we've came a very long way with equality and gay rights and ending racism and things like that. But, like, have we really, though? Yeah. Like, have we really evolved a lot? Because, honestly, we haven't. And I don't give a fuck who wants to argue that point with me. We really haven't. People like me still live in fear every fucking day. Yeah. Of just being who we are, you know? My God, I'm sorry. Y'all are getting some unedited raw shit today from me. (laughs) I just, it's angering and it's moving because, you know, what Joey and Charles had, the love that they had for each other and them just wanting to live their life in peace together with one another, uh, free to be who they are and what they believe. That is the right that we all have, regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of your gender, regardless of your skin color. We are all equal and we all have a right Right. to pursue that. And for, for these people to be killed this way, like I, for no other reason other than their lifestyle. Yeah. And then that makes me think, you know, the main reason I started crying, because like, as you've described these people and their relationship, it like makes me think about me and Kenneth. Right. Which I haven't talked about him a whole lot on the pod, but Kenneth is my partner and I love him dearly. And that is definitely a goal that we have, you know, like if we could... Just be happy, just us, the dogs, you know, you included, of course, but that is the dream. We want to go somewhere. We want to have a life together. We want to have a future together. And then the anger comes into it because it's like, well, can I do that? Like, is this going to be, is there a situation that's going to arise one day to where somebody can look at mine and Kenneth's life and not like it, therefore fucking executing me and him? You know, it's just really, really heavy, and I think about that, and it is so fucking heartbreaking because in today's world, we honestly have not grown that much. Yeah. Like, in some ways we have, but in some ways we haven't. Trans people are still being murdered daily. Gay people are being murdered daily. Like, that... I just don't know how else to put that. It is sad. It is angering. I have fucking tears rolling down my fucking face because it is scary, you know? Like, am I... Am I going to be able to have a chance at a life with the man that I love and the person that I love? Or is some bullshit like this going to happen all because of a society that won't accept anything other than what's deemed to be normal? You know, like, what the fuck? So I didn't mean to have that little spiel. I just, it fucking broke me. It's real. (laughs) 
it's real. And like, there's... this shit fucking broke me, man. Like, it absolutely fucking broke me. So I'm sorry, you guys. You had to hear me cry and get emotional. <laughs> I usually try not to let that happen, but it is fucking sad, and it is scary to think about. You know, like, we are all entitled to this. And we are all entitled to be happy and and to have love and to have, you know, whatever it is that we fucking want. It doesn't right. matter. We're allowed to have that. And just, man, oh, and fucking man. And if you're man. listening to this from another country, just know America is not okay right now. <laughs> no, and it, no, no, and it, it hasn't it's been. Not. And it hasn't been. I, like, we can, we can argue all day fucking long. I don't care. But continue with the story. I'm sorry. That just, that really just fucking got me. Like, well, it really, really sharing. fucking got me. Thank you for sharing. We love you. I love you too. I'm sorry. This is about to get worse. Oh God. Okay. I'm. I need to try to get my fucking shit together. I I need to reel it back. I need to reel it back. Okay. Woo. I need to like fucking reel it back. Let me wipe my eyes real quick. Okay. Uh. Fuck. I'm so sorry, you guys. Y'all got the the unedited experience today. Um. <laughs> All right, continue. Now, the article I read from the Church of Satan, the high priestess that wrote the article, Magistra uh, Peggy Nadramia, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. she had an interesting take on Charles's last words saying, quote, he took responsibility for the mistake he made in allowing these savages into his life, end quote. Uh... I don't know if that is... If that is a religious view on something, because you know how a lot of people go, well, everything happens for a reason. Well, no, right. That's why I, I hesitated, because I don't know if there's like a deeper meaning to that. Like maybe it coincides with their beliefs and I don't want to like, you know, cross a boundary and be like, oh, well, that rubbed me the wrong way. When honestly, I don't know. I, like, I, I just don't that, know. I honestly thought that it was something important, like even though I didn't understand the the actual meaning behind it. There are other Satanist-believing people out there that may understand it. Exactly. So, so I just figured it was important. As we said earlier in the episode, if you're listening to this and you happen to be a practicing Satanist and you maybe have some more insight on what this statement means or doesn't mean, like, ju just hit us up. We love to be educated, you know, just definitely hit us up, send us a message, whatever, because I also can't really say that I understand that, so I don't want to, like... I don't want to try to dissect it if I don't understand it. And I also don't want to like shit on it if I don't understand it. You know right. what I'm saying? So I'm just kind of I'm neutral about that. But was it was it that or was it something more? And here's a real what the fuck moment for you. OK, when I said spook was going to enter the chat a few months before their murders, Charles painted a self-portrait and in the self-portrait, his mouth was bound with duct tape. And what looks like five bullet holes in his head. What? Many speculate that this was a premonition of his own death, especially considering his last words. And I also included a photo of the painting as well. A friend of the couple even claimed that Charles told her while looking at the painting, quote, that's how I'm going to die, end quote. So. The fucking so, chills. So, the fucking chills. Was him saying, I asked for this as him taking responsibility? Or was it because he literally knew it was going to happen? Oh my God. I have fucking chills. Like, I don't even know what to say to that. I honestly, 
I don't know what to say to that. I obviously believe in visions and premonitions and things of that nature. I know you do too, but like, holy fucking shit. And this is the painting. Yes. Oh my God. I honestly, I don't know what to say to that. That is some chilling shit. It's like he knew he was going to die. Yeah. Oh my God. After the brutal slayings, the house was further ransacked. West told Brock and Wells to go upstairs and steal everything they could as he removed a silver bracelet from Charles's wrist that had his name engraved on it, a silver medallion, and a diamond ring from his finger. Teresa's just sitting there in shock, watching all of this happen. They tried taking Charles's golden encrusted heart, but it was too heavy and too big, which... I don't know what the fuck you're thinking. A harp is not going to fit in your car. I just don't understand any of this. I'm, it is beyond understanding. And this is what really pisses me off. Dumb and Dumb are left with only a pillowcase filled with a handful of nickels and dimes, a twenty-two revolver, a pair of handcuffs, one silver candelabra, and a gold-plated dagger. That's what their lives were worth. Jesus fucking Christ. West ordered Wells and Teresa to keep their mouths shut and to get into his car. They fled the scene in West's 1970 AMC Javelin and Charles's black CJ5 Jeep. There's your fucking riches, you roaches. Jesus fucking Christ. That's what I'm screaming. Now, West was driving in reverse in the Javelin, I guess, to get out of the driveway or something. I don't know why he was going backwards, but... He swerved to hit a tree he was about to back into and went into a ditch. So then they used Charles's Jeep to get the javelin out of the ditch and headed back to the trailer. Again, stupid motherfuckers. That's not even the word. <laughs> not even the words. The bodies of Charles Scudder and Joseph Odom would not be found until two to three days later when their friend Raymond Williams visited Corpsewood to inform them of the passing of a friend in Rome, Georgia. He notices bullet holes in the kitchen door. So he immediately like went back down the mountain and called the sheriff's office. Deputies from the Chattooga County Sheriff's Office were at Corpsewood within the hour. Entering the house, they found blood-stained walls, overturned furniture, and bullet casings. Sheriff Gary McConnell called in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the State Crime Lab. Now, that same day that they were found, Teresa Hudgens came forward to the police, and she was truthful about everything. But she had her own challenges to get through just to come forward, which is crazy. So they went back to Joey Wells' house, and Teresa was saying, like, I want to call the police. Like, I'm really uncomfortable. Like, we need to call someone. But Wells was not about to snitch on his uncle. So while Wells' mother was giving Teresa a ride home, Teresa told his mother the entire story. But even Mrs. Wells advised her not to go to the police. What the fuck? Knowing Teresa was going to tell, she had Teresa pick up her two-year-old daughter, took them both back to her house, and kept them locked up and away from the phone for four days. Oh my fucking god. So Wells took her to a friend's house, and here she managed to get away and called her uncle to come get her, which is a scary fucking situation. But thank goodness, because 
Thanks to Teresa, a nationwide manhunt was now underway to catch Avery Brock and Samuel Tony Wells. So while investigating the manor, police found two human skulls, three vials allegedly filled with LSD, numerous occult tools, a small occult library, which even with them also finding a large general academic and literature library, the occult stuff is what they had a bias on. Of course, of course. So investigators also found and noted the couple's large collection of gay porn. And as you can imagine, they had bias here as well. All of this to us is like, and okay. But these were the findings of the reports at that time. And Charles was just like us, collecting and appreciating the darker side of life. But that doesn't make him a fucking monster. No, it doesn't. Even more interesting, a day after they finished investigating, both the chicken coop and the manor were burned down to the ground sometime in January of 1983. Jesus fucking fuck. The Chattooga County Sheriff's Office labeled Charles and Joey as devil worshippers. Sheriff McConnell actually tried to bring charges against them in the past for their odd behavior and beliefs, but the First Amendment right also covers freedom of religion. People think it's only freedom of speech, but it's not. The First Amendment prevents laws against an establishment of religion, and you have the ability to exercise your religious freedom. It protects freedom of speech, the press, freedom of assembly, and the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So the sheriff couldn't do shit but label them, which is even shittier because you're talking shit on on the dead, and on their sacred practice. So fuck you in particular, guy. Right, right. That's what I'm, again, that's what I'm screaming. So Brock and Wes told their families they were going to Florida, but they began to head to Mexico, anxious to get out of the area. Wes sold his javelin to Joey Wells for $7 that he had on him at the time. And they agreed Wells would pay an additional $68 later. They then used the Jeep to leave the state. And once they got to Mississippi, they decided to ditch their black getaway Jeep with pentagrams painted on it for something less conspicuous. On December 15, 1982, at a rest stop in Boniva, Mississippi, they woke to see another car in the rest stop parking lot. Sleeping inside his car, a young Navy lieutenant who was on his way home for Christmas. His name was Kirby Phelps. Wes grabbed the twenty-two revolver and walked to this guy's car, knocked on the window, and held him at gunpoint with the intention of tying him to a tree and stealing his vehicle. This is yet again another robbery gone wrong. They forced Kirby out of his car, handcuffed him and West, and led him into a grove of trees while Brock was unloading the Jeep. When West uncuffed one of his hands to cuff him around a tree, Kirby punched him. So Wes shot him three times in the head and killed him. They stole his car, his clothes, and what little cash he had on him. And they drove Kirby's car. Uh, Wes drove Kirby's car and Brock drove Charles's Jeep, abandoning it shortly after. While in Austin, Texas, these two fuckheads got into an argument about their plan and split up. Brock voluntarily, maybe feeling bad surrendered himself to the police in Marietta, Georgia on December 20th of 1982. Five days later, West was arrested on Christmas Day in Chattanooga, Tennessee. As the trial was underway, Charles and Joey were labeled again and vilified as homosexual devil worshippers by the media and the general public. With their lifestyle and interest in Satanism under full display, 
They became easy targets of the satanic panic that was spreading at that time. Not only was Hollywood perpetuating the Satan-worshipping, virgin-sacrificing, baby-eating, demon-summoning sex cult stereotypes, <laughs> but now, thanks to the media, the story spread like wildfire, and the public had a face to these imaginary monsters they created in Charles and Joey. So, according to Magistra Blanche Barton of the Church of Satan, Dr. LeVay was enraged and grieved by the injustice of what happened to them. Quote, LeVay viewed these murders as evidence that there were still areas in the United States where eccentric people were still attacked for holding beliefs outside the norm. End quote. So as you can imagine, there was a division of views on this case. It happened in Bible Belt, Georgia in the 80s during the satanic panic fever during a time where homosexuality was only viewed as sinful and the devil's work. The fact that they were also reclusive and isolated, the public rumors were insane. Very bigoted rumors as well. Unfortunately, because of the public's opinion, the victims were not seen as victims, but rather a nuisance that had been taken care of. During the trial, the defense accused Dr. Scudder of spiking the wine with LSD in order to try and have oral sex with them. Bullshit. But the bottle of wine was tested and had negative results for LSD or any other hallucinogenics. Not to mention the LSD vials found were old laboratory samples, mostly dried up with yellowed labels that Dr. Scudder saved as souvenirs, like I said earlier. Mm -hmm. Scudder's old colleague and friend, Dr. Karksmar, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, attested that Dr. Scudder was not a drug user, nor was he a devil worshiper, and would have actually been the type of person to disapprove of drug use altogether. So when that claim failed, West argued he was involuntary intoxicated. So the law says involuntary intoxication occurs when someone is tricked into consuming a substance like drugs or alcohol or when someone is forced to do so. Yet again, the defense gets extremely homophobic and says, quote, he had a motive because he was homosexual, end quote. Right. Of course. Of course. Accusing Charles of drugging West to take advantage of him because he's a homosexual. It's fucking disgusting. Yeah, it's, it's more than disgusting. It's fucking sad. And it's scary. Teresa also said that after Brock shot and killed Charles, he looked at West and said something along the lines of, now tell me I don't have the guts to kill someone. What the fuck? So that alone shows that he was fully aware of what he was doing. Not only that, but she was very adamant in saying that there were absolutely no drugs or drug paraphernalia used at the party. Furthermore, Teresa also said that she was drinking the same wine Brock and West were, and there was no way they were intoxicated. None of them were. Prosecutors pointed out the evidence they had against West from his confession to a GBI agent, where West stated that he and Brock had planned the robbery and murders just a few days prior. West also told the GBI agent that Brock wanted to kill Scudder because Scudder had once engaged in oral sex with him. I was unable to find the agent's name, unfortunately, but that's what they told him. He also told Chattooga County Sheriff Tony Gilliland, quote, All I can say is they were devils and I killed them. That's how I feel about it. End quote. Fucking eat shit and die. Like, literally eat shit and fucking die. That's how I feel about that. 
The media and public were in a frenzy over this story. They were so tunnel-visioned on the occult stuff, they made the murders an afterthought. No one cared. Sadly, the murders were deemed justifiable in the eyes of the public, but the murder of Kirby Phelps got everyone's attention. Their pathetic lie about being drugged against their will by Dr. Scudder failed to explain this third cold-blooded murder for anything other than what it was. So Kenneth Avery Brock pleaded guilty and received three consecutive life sentences. Samuel Tony West was convicted of double homicide and sentenced to death. But a retrial was called by, get this shit, not having the right number of women on the jury. You're fucking kidding me, right? That's why he needed a retrial, because there wasn't enough women on the jury. And I, oh my fucking so God. So he escaped the death sentence and was resentenced to life in prison. Brock is currently serving his life sentence at the Coffee Correctional Facility in Nichols, Georgia. West is currently serving his life sentence at Wilcox State Prison in Abbeville, Georgia. Both have been denied parole multiple times. Good. A small private funeral was held at Corpsewood Manor where Joseph Odom's ashes were scattered in the Rose Garden. Dr. Charles Scudder's ashes were taken back to Wisconsin by his sister Janet Scudder Arnold, where he was buried in their family plot. Remains of the manor continue to stand the test of time, although largely overgrown by nature. Visitors from all over come to see what remains of Dr. Scudder's dream. A lot of these visitors report an overwhelming feeling of sadness. People have claimed to have heard gunshots, the barking of dogs, and witnessed the glowing of Beelzebub and Arsenath's eyes in the darkness. Fucking fuck. The reality of today's story is two innocent men were brutally murdered, then vilified for their sexual orientation and religious beliefs. They were completely swept under the rug. As a whole, as a society, as you touched on earlier, we have made great strides toward equality and acceptance of others' beliefs, but there is still a very large portion of our country that still has its beliefs rooted in bigotry and hatred. Dr. Scudder was a vibrant and beautiful soul. Joseph Odom was a passionate and loving soul. They both possessed an array of passions, interests, and talents that became stronger when they were together. They proved to the world how strong they were together, displaying their drive to create their own world. They achieved their dream, however brief, in the beautiful hilltop home they lovingly named Corpsewood Manor. And that concludes the story of Corpsewood Manor. You're done. <laughs> You're done. You're done. You're done. Done. <laughs> that is how. I, that is the only feedback that I have after that. Um, this was enraging. This was extremely sad. I cannot believe that this happened in our home state. Like, if that doesn't just add another layer of fear of what I was talking about earlier, mm -hmm. when I don't know, I was crying my fucking eyes out. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know what to say to this. I absolutely fucking hate it. And I hope these two motherfuckers that did this have the most miserable, lonely, hollow life that a human can possibly fucking have. I wish nothing but absolute damnation on them. Right. Absolutely. Like, that. that's a strong word, but I just... I hope everything for you goes wrong. 
I hope it goes wrong. I hope you have wet socks for the rest of your natural fucking life. I hope your bones break every time you fucking breathe. I hope that you always have the warm side of the fucking pillow. I hope all of your food tastes nasty. I hope every single time you get a tire on your car, that bitch busts. Oh, I forgot. You're in jail. That ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Motherfuckers. Jesus. Like, you did the damn thing. Uh, Nona? If you're still listening, Nona? I done cried on air for like five minutes. I will be calling you about this. <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> Nona, sweetie, we have something to discuss. <laughs> because I was not fucking with it. <laughs> I did not expect to literally ball my eyes out and just expose my vulnerability to all of you listening. But you know what I did. <laughs> and, and but you know what I think? I think showing that vulnerability and uh, you know sharing that with us today, you know, puts us a little bit closer with our listeners. Yeah, definitely. I, you guys definitely uh, get to know me just that much better, I suppose. <laughs> but my God, man. That one fucking took me for a loop. My God, it is horribly sad, but I am very, very glad that you took the time to cover this. I definitely believe this is a story that needs to be shared and talked about. So I'm very happy that we did this. My God. Like, I honestly, again, for like the hundredth time, I don't really have anything else to say. I think I've gotten all of my feedback, uh, out through the crying and the insults. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. I'm emotionally very numb right now. <laughs> I honestly want to just hug Kenneth as hard as I can, and I think I'm going to do that when he gets here later. Right. So, everybody, <laughs> when it comes to your loved one, just hug them a little bit harder today. So, that's going to conclude our case for this week, you guys. Thank you so very much for listening and tuning in with us. We appreciate it. And if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, good news. You can totally do that. Find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. Don't forget our email, guys, goreportpod at gmail.com. Send us an email if you like. I don't really have anything else to say about this. Um, Fuck homophobia. Fuck bigotry. Fuck hatred. We are all one and equal. God damn it. When will we learn? When will we learn? Anyways, we're going to get the fuck off of here, you guys. That is it. And until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.